Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the first in this series. Um, as you've been hearing, we're, we're going to be digging into the life of Elijah. That means we're going to be going uh, chapter by chapter through a portion of First Kings and just into Second Kings. Uh, this remarkable prophet certainly uh, does provide us with some fantastic lessons and examples to learn from. Uh, in summary, let me just read the... Um, the brief uh, description. During the six-part series, there will be moments when you will be struck by Elijah's outrageous faith and feel for him when he's alone and depressed. You'll observe his radical commitment to God, see him operate in the miraculous, stand against evil, engage in spiritual warfare, and develop other leaders. At a time when our city of Melbourne desperately needs a revival, we have principles to apply from this great prophet. Let the account of his extraordinary life impact your life throughout this series. Now, the topic for this first in the series, first installment, is Man of Miracles. First uh, topic through the series, Man of Miracles. And um, the reigning king of Israel at the moment is a guy called Ahab. Now, he started his reign in 874 B.C. And perhaps it might be helpful to put up a map at this time, because uh, Israel at this point is a divided kingdom. Uh, there's the northern kingdom there in blue, which is often simply referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom, which is often referred to as Judah. And so after Solomon's reign, his son wasn't a great king. And as a result, the kingdom divided. In the south, you've got the very large tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and most of the Levites. In the north, you have the rest of the tribes. You can see a star there almost in the middle of the map with the word Samaria next to it. Samaria has recently become the capital of the northern kingdom. Uh, let me read a little bit about the political scene. So if we just go back a chapter earlier than where we dig into the, the life of Elijah. 1629 of 1 Kings. In the 30, 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, northern kingdom. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and, be, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. You got the idea? So um, this guy has become king. He's married a Sidonian lady, uh, quite uh, powerfully depicted, I thought, in the clip. And uh, Jezebel has had uh, great influence over the northern kingdom and particularly over her husband, who was king. And so Baal worship has become a part of the northern kingdom. And um, it's remarkable, really, because um, this form of worship, it wouldn't have been long ago that the Israelite people would have considered it grotesque. And yet now it's mainstream. And this happens in society all the time. Every couple of decades, society changes its opinion about what is right and what is wrong. It consistently happens. And, of course, I'd rather stick to the unchanging word of God than whatever happens to be popular or acceptable in society at any given time. To give you an idea about this particular type of worship, uh, the 450 prophets of Baal, as part of their worship, it included bodily mutilation. They would literally take knives, sometimes swords, and slice their arms, their legs, 
till, bloody, till blood gushed from their bodies as part of their frantic pagan worship. But what did I say? It's mainstream worship now in the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, I just, um, just to raise that, you know, in the changing, shifting sands of uh, what's popular and acceptable in our society today, let's be a people who are mindful of what we're embracing. Let's have a look here at the, um, the Canaanite gods. So Baal was usually pictured uh, as a bull or as this kind of figure of a guy or a mixture of both. It could be that sort of image of, that, of a man but with a bull's head. That's the idol. They were, uh, the um, Baal idols uh, were often made in the shape of a bull or the, the, um, as I explained, sometimes a man with a bull's head uh, representing strength and fertility and reflecting lust for power and sexual pleasure. Let's have a look now at Elijah as he's introduced to the scene. 1 Kings 17.1 Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. Hmm. This is remarkable, really, when you think about it. Here, here comes this prophet, speaking to a very powerful king, a king that has no morals, really, a king that would kill you as quick as look at you, you know, and yet this bold prophet comes and addresses the king and says to him, you know, because Yahweh, the true God of Israel, has spoken to me, there's going to be no rain in Israel until I say. And this flies in the face of what they understood about Baal worship because their opinion was, that Baal, why they worshipped him, was he controls the weather. You have bountiful harvest because of Baal. And now Elijah has completely contradicted that in what he said. Um, you know, I wonder how he could be so confident, though. How can this prophet have such confidence that what he says will come to pass? It's quite remarkable, really. Well, I, you know, I think we get a little bit of an insight in the book of James. Elijah spoken of in the New Testament several times. James says this about him, James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. What does he say? Well, he mentions righteousness, which certainly would be typical of uh, an apt description of Elijah, but he also mentions earnest prayer or passionate prayer. And really what he's saying is, even though Elijah's just like you and I, because he was such a man of prayer, that's why he could be so confident about his prophetic word. Can I suggest as our first application today? Number one, increase your commitment to prayer. Message for all of us, increase your commitment to prayer. You know, I sometimes think that um, we pray less dependent upon our value of prayer or our belief in how much it achieves. Uh, my associate pastor back at Nary Warren Baptist, a, a chap called Antonio, he had the opportunity to go to South Korea to a conference at a big Methodist church there. And uh, he came back with a fantastic report to share with us all. Um, as he described the Methodist church, it's about 5,500 strong in its Sunday attendance, so a little bit bigger than Crossway. Um, 
and he said going to the services there throughout the Sundays, I mean, it was, it was, it was just powerful, he said, you know. Every, every service you'd see people come to faith in Christ. There were miracles being worked regularly. Um, he said that the presence of God was just very, very tangible in their church services. But he said, but you know, it wasn't that that impressed me the most about them. It was their prayer meetings. And he went on to share with us that 5 a.m. every morning, seven days a week, they would meet at the church, the church facility, for prayer. But not just a handful. He said the attendance averaged 1,000 to 1,500 every morning, 5 a.m. 1,000 to 1,500 on average attendance. Um, now, I know that you might be thinking, yeah, but, but Lee... They're a mega church, you know, that's, um, you know, that's why they can have so many turning up for prayer. But now think about it for a moment though, okay, five and a half thousand showing up for their Sunday services. That's still about 20% of their people showing up on average at 5am each morning. And so that would be equivalent, let's say, you know, a more regular Melbourne church of 200 people over their, their Sunday service. That would be like 40 people showing up every morning, seven mornings a week for prayer, 40 Four zero. I mean, that would be impressive, wouldn't it? Twenty percent of your people showing up for prayer like that. So <laughs> he said that he thinks was the powerhouse of why the church was being so effective. But I know that people can sometimes think, yeah, but really, Lee, you know, I know it's good to pray and all that sort of thing. But did it? Does it really make that much difference? Um, let me give you a stat here. Because um, Korea wasn't always like this. Uh, and listening to David Yongi Cho, it sounds like it started about in the 60s that they started to meet their churches for early morning prayer meetings. And uh, he would say that from that, revival fires swept South Korea. I'll give you a little stat here. Um, in 1960, Korea, South Korea was 5% evangelical. Evangelicals are those who value the word of the God to the point where they say, look, I'm, I'm going to live this, I'm going to believe this, I want to follow, I want my life to be shaped by the Bible. Uh, the evangelicals believe in a, you know, inviting Jesus into their life, becoming a born-again Christian. 5% evangelical. Well, over the decades, with those prayer meetings sweeping the country, today, it's about 20% evangelical. Four times the size. So perhaps the prayer makes a difference. That's significant church growth. It was back in the 60s, Buddhism was by far the major religion of South Korea. Today, it's 30% uh, Christian, but only 23% Buddhist. Prayer, perhaps it makes a difference. Um, You've, you've heard mentioned uh, there's a Zoom prayer meeting five mornings a week at the church. Um, there's details actually on the information table about that too, a little on Zoom. Yeah, didn't I say a Zoom prayer meeting? Yeah, there's a, a Zoom prayer meeting at the church. We're at the church, whether we're here physically or wherever. So there's a Zoom prayer meeting five mornings a week. Um, not physically here at the church, but um, as part of the church. So yeah, encourage you consider being a part of that but we also heard in an announcements as well um united prayer gathering so 5th of august uh 2 p.m to 4 30 p.m maroon city church 
Um, now, that's a church we've been partnering with with some of our combined youth events. I've been to, uh, been to these before. Uh, great time. There will be people from several different churches will be there. Uh, they're powerful, powerful meetings. I encourage you to get along to one of those. Um, I'll, I'll be there myself for this one. Um, make it a priority. And you, you can sign up online, but um, that's really just so they know numbers. You can just turn up as well. Feel free to just turn up. Um, again, I know you might be thinking, yeah, but it, well, it's noble to get together with other churches and pray. But here in this country, okay, Korea, fair enough. But here in this country, does it make any difference getting together for prayer? Is it worth my time doing that? Will it really have any impact on my society or church in general? Quite a few years back, I was in Sydney and um, ultimately felt led to join Crossway Baptist and uh, be a part of planting uh, their first of uh, three branch churches um, in the journey of doing that, Casey Shire was the place that uh, ultimately that church was going to be planted. And um, as we got going there, I think we launched the church in 2004. And one of the things I would do there is there was already a great prayer meeting into the denominational one. Pastors and church leaders meeting every Wednesday morning for prayer. And it was powerful. We prayed for revival for the Casey Shire. Melbourne in general, but especially for Casey. And in the journey of doing that, I mean, you go to those meetings, mate. The faith, the atmosphere was, was fantastic. Also, I mean, there was other things going on too, revival prayer stuff. My wife, um, with cooperation with my church prayer director, Georgina, the two of them went around at one point and visited a bunch of the churches close to our church and decided we're going to have a week of revival prayer. And so moving it around different church buildings, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and finishing on Friday night, we prayed for revival. Every night, the churches were packed, filled to the brim. Now, okay, all this revival prayer meeting stuff I'm talking doesn't make any difference, though. Well, interestingly, uh, the census came out 2006 to 2011. So in 2011, when that census came out, I had a look at it. The churches in Casey grew phenomenally, many of them. I knew from meeting with local Baptist pastors, I knew from meeting with some of the other denominational leaders, their churches were growing. People were getting saved, people were getting healed. God was doing stuff. Give you a little stat. The Baptist churches, in that five-year period in Casey Shire, they didn't grow by 10% or 20% or 30%. In that five-year period, the Baptist churches of Casey grew by 100%. Now, I'm convinced those revival prayer meetings were making a difference. They were causing the backslidden Christian to open their mind to say, look, I need to get back to church. I need to get my life right with God. They were causing the unchurched person to say, you know, actually, life's a mess. I wonder if God's real. Perhaps I should go, to, go along to him. This outreach thing I heard about that a church is doing. So let me just encourage you. We've got a combined church revival prayer meeting coming up that I've popped up there. Why don't you make it a real priority to get along to that? You know, um, I mean, I know the revival prayer meetings um, stopped a few years back. And some of the churches that I'm most familiar with, some of the Baptist ones I'm most familiar with, they have declined. Their attendances have done that since those prayer meetings stopped. 
Let's have a look at uh, 17.2 of 1 Kings. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. He drank from the brook. Um, <laughs> that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Imagine that, being told by God. Oh, go off to this brook in the middle of nowhere, and I'm going to tell birds to feed you bread and meat. And, uh, you know, Elijah just cooperates. And yet I wonder if he had in his mind, you know, why would God choose ravens? Because, you see, in Leviticus, it says... Um, in 11, 13 and 14, that ravens were an unclean bird. Well, perhaps a dove, but no, ravens. Ravens of all things. But you, you see this in Elijah, he doesn't question these outrageous things that he believes God is saying. He just, he just responds to the promptings of God's Spirit. Well, I think that's a lesson for us, friends. Number two, respond to God's promptings. Number two, respond to God's promptings. Now, if you're like me, the more you pray, the more you get promptings. But then when he gives you a prompting, you think, oh, God, I don't want to go speak to that person then. They'll think I'm a nutter. I'll get embarrassed. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes I cooperate. I remember one day I was out the front of my church in Britain. I felt the Lord prompt me about this guy. I met him once. His friend had introduced me. His friend was a church goer. He wasn't a believer. And he's walking along, he's coming towards the church, uh, bus stop in front of the church. And I felt the Lord say, share the gospel with him, pray for him to receive my spirit now. Well, I cooperated. Went up to him, we had a brief bit of chit-chat, and I said, you know, let me, um, let, me tell you, let me tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shared the gospel with him, went through it step by step. I said, would you like Jesus to be a part of your life right now? He said, um, I guess so. And uh, so I led him in a prayer there and then, grabbed his hand and asked God by his spirit to impart his presence right there and then. Guy gave his life to Christ. And you might think, well, man, that guy's going to give you a wide berth in the future. <laughs> but no, he didn't. Called him up. Got his details, called him up, said, we'd start now for you want to come. He came, sat at my table. Within a month, I'd, in a baptism service, had the privilege of baptizing him. Why? Because I responded to the prompting of God's spirit. And I was even a bit aggressive about it. And yet, the guy gives his life to Christ, does Alpha, gets baptised. 1 Kings 17.7 says this. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded the widow in that place to supply you with food. Hmm. I mean, this is a bit outrageous too. Let's have a look at a map at how far he had to travel. What this map's like. See the red line, the big long red line? It's all the way down at the, the Kerith Ravine there, and that, the um, small creek brook that runs into the Jordan. All the way up there, the Zarephath. Man, it's quite a distance, isn't it? But not only that, you see, uh, it's interesting where... God chose to take him. Let's read on. 1 Kings 17, 10. 
So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And um, bring me a piece of bread. And she calls back, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we might eat it and die. Not a lot of hope in her life. Last meal. See, there's famine in the land. Hardly any food. It's interesting what she says, though. You notice that? She's a Sidonian. That's where Jezebel comes from. You know that fascinating? That God has taken Elijah all the way to Jezebel's country. I mean, you don't see Elijah saying, I'm not going there. No, he just cooperates. Um, but it still seems a bit weird, doesn't it? But then again, when you think about it, King Ahab has sent people all over the northern kingdom of Israel, but he's even sent them to other nations looking for Elijah. Because once he realised that nutty prophet, his, his prophetic words come to pass. It's, we've had drought for months and months and months and months. If I kill the guy, I reckon his prophet, prophecy will, will be severed. You know, And that's what he's trying to do. I'll tell you what, I bet the last place King Ahab would expect to find him would be in his wife's country. <laughs> so perhaps that's God's logic there as uh, he takes Elijah there. But you notice this woman, she doesn't speak of Baal. She says, the Lord your God. And she used, when you see L-O-I-D in capitals, it means she said, Yahweh, your God. She's almost certainly a believer. So she might be Sidonian, but she's a believer in the one true God. See, God's got nothing against the Sidonian people. What he's got against them is the fact they are worshippers of a false god, Baal. Now have a look here at what uh, Jesus uh, says about Elijah going to this widow. Luke 4.25 I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any one of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Fascinating, isn't it? And of course, the religious leaders, when Jesus said that, they were up in arms because they're very nationalistic. And Jesus was pointing out God loves all people. And I, can I suggest, here's another lesson we learn from this passage. Number three, share God's love with all nationalities. Share God's love with all nationalities. Now, I'm pleased to look out this morning and I see a multicultural church. It always disturbs me a little bit if you, you walk into a church and it doesn't reflect the culture of the area. You know, if you, there's, there's a lot of nationalities reflected in an area, then surely the local church should look like that too. 1 Kings 17.13 says this, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on our land. You notice what he asks her. She has virtually no food 
And he says, I want you to go make a small bun of bread for me. But not only that, he says, do that first and bring it to me and then make one for you and your family. Now, she could have said, I don't even know you. I'm not, I'm not giving you my last, sharing my last bit of food with you. That, that's how she could have responded, isn't it? And you might say that would be reasonable. But if she'd have done that, she'd have probably starved. Instead, she cooperated with the word of God through the prophet. And it's a, there's a principle there, I think, friends. You notice that she's asked to give first and then provide for a family. And I see that pattern in Scripture quite a bit. Give first into the kingdom of God and then provide for yourself and your family. And um, I know know there's some of you here in this church, you have to do it that way. I do too. Because if you don't give first and you think there'll be something left over, there usually isn't. (laughs) That's why you have to do it that way. Um, So for me, whether it's uh, direct debit or salary sacrifice, that's what I've tended to do is you've got to take it out first because otherwise there's nothing left. You notice he said to her, don't be afraid. You know, I want to make the suggestion that that's the biggest reason people don't give into God's work. It's because of fear. They're fearful they will not have enough. If I'm going to give something into God's kingdom, I'm not going to have enough for myself or for my family. But she didn't let that fear rule her. Can I suggest we can learn from the widow? Number four. Don't allow fear to stop you giving your resources in response to God's word. Number four, don't allow fear to stop you giving your resources in response to God's word. Passage goes on, 1715, records what she did. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So the lady, her son, they are provided for because she cooperated with the word of the Lord. Let me suggest this. Number five, God's provision is often most miraculous when our resources are at an end, yet we still faithfully give some of you've got a testimony about that god's provision is often most miraculous when our resources are at an end yet we still faithfully give wow just think that widow could have missed out on god's provision but she didn't let fear rule her rather she stepped out in faith Seventeen, seventeen. 17 first Kings says sometime later the son of the woman the, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Then she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? You can feel her emotions there, can't you? She doesn't have a husband anymore. The one person left in her life is her son. He's died. She's filled with grief, anger, hurt. Um, Did Elijah kill her son though? No, in fact, uh, her son was only alive because Elijah was there. 
But when you're hurting, you lash out at those around you, don't you? And Elijah's the only one there. So he cops it. And friends, um, I learned this as an application, number six. Don't look for someone to blame when life turns sour. It's a natural human tendency, but don't look for someone to blame when life turns sour. It's very easy to be like that. Something goes wrong, something's negative, something turns sour. We want to blame someone, and we do. And often it's not fair, just as it's not fair on this occasion. Um, <laughs> it's human nature, you've got to go right back even to Adam and Eve. Think of it. They're in the garden. They partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they realize everything's changed. They suddenly want to cover up. They want to hide from God. And they hear the sound of the Lord in the cool of the day coming into the garden. And the Lord says, Adam, where are you? In other words, Adam, why are you where you are? And Adam comes and speaks and says, mentions that he's hidden and God says have you eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I commanded you not to eat from and um, Adam admits that he has but he wants to blame someone and so he says it was the woman she tempted me the woman you put here he's blaming the woman he's blaming God and so then God goes to talk to Eve and um, and she what she want to do well, she said, it was the serpent. It was the serpent that tempted me. She wants to blame someone. And then um, God goes to the serpent. And of course, he didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> uh, let's have a look here at uh, verse 19. We have this um, shown in the clip, don't we? This uh, dramatic scene. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed then he cried out to the Lord oh Lord my God have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing a son to die then he stretched himself out on the boy and three times he cried out oh Lord my God let this boy's life return to him Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to the mother and said, look, your son is alive. You notice, though, the lady cooperated with Elijah. He offered to pray for the son. But remember all the hurt? She could have responded very differently. Instead of allowing him to pray, she said, No! Get your hands off him! Don't you think you've done enough? I could hear her responding that way. But she didn't. Rather, she put aside that, um, that hurt, that fear, that anger, and cooperated with what God wanted to do. And that raises the question, friends. 
Let's ask ourselves this question. How many miracles have you missed out on because you held on to blame? How many miracles have you missed out on because you held on to blame? Could have been very different, but fortunately, this widow was a woman of faith. Can I suggest this? Number seven, expect the miraculous. Expect the miraculous. Expect the miraculous. It's the way God wants us to live. And when, we, you know, um, faith, this is an important thing to understand. Faith is not about knowing God can do it. The sort of faith we see in the Bible is believing He will. It's an expectation. You don't expect it, don't expect to, you won't receive much. You have a strong expectation of the miraculous, it is more likely going to happen. It's how God has chosen to cooperate with His people. What have we learned today? Let's recap on those points. Number one, increase your commitment to prayer. Two, respond to God's promptings. Three, share God's love with all nationalities. Four, don't allow fear to stop you giving your resources to God. Another slide. Number five, God's provision is often most miraculous when our resources are at an end, yet we still faithfully give. Six, don't look for someone to blame when life turns sour. And seven, expect the miraculous. Expect the miraculous. Now, friends, I know when you read a story there about the resurrection of this boy, it's easy to think, okay, I know there's some outrageous things that happens in the Bible. I know Jesus rose the dead. You know, even Paul, Peter and stuff. But, you know, I cannot see how that relates to us today. I mean, God doesn't do that anymore. You know, I was uh, watching a documentary with my son, Zach, on Friday night. Let me show you the uh, image of the uh, cover here. Raised from the dead, 21st century miracle. Some of you might have seen it. Let me tell you a story. It's about an African guy. It's Pastor Daniel. I'm going to try and pronounce his second name. Um, Ekuwa. Pastor Daniel Ekuwa. And he's from Nigeria. On the 30th of November, 2001, in uh, um, Onitsha, he's uh, had a bit of an argument with his wife that morning when I was seeing the extended documentary. And uh, probably not, you know, a bit cranky. Driving a bit faster than he should, perhaps. He's with, with a friend in his car. Anyway, he comes tearing down a hill. And uh, it's this little ravine, really. And uh, applies his foot to the brake straight to the floor, no brake fluid. The car gets completely out of control and smashes into one of the big um, cement poles that is there. His body just thrust into the steering wheel. This is an old Mercedes, no airbag. Chest plummets into the steering wheel, just collapses in, head hits the windscreen. He and his mate are in a critical condition, taken out of the car, taken to hospital. His wife arrives at the hospital and uh, in that, I guess, that traumatised state, he's saying, is there any chance I could go to my regular hospital where I normally go and have, you know, the doctor who normally would, would uh, you know, see to me? He just had that anxious feelings, I guess. And so despite the staff, of course, staff of the hospital said it's very dangerous to move someone when they've been so badly imaged, but, injured, but nevertheless, um, into the ambulance, being transferred to the other hospital. So off they went. However, before he got to the hospital, he died. 
So um, not his own doctor, but uh, doctor, one of the doctors at the other hospital, Dr. Uh, Jose Abamwa, examines him. And eyes are fixed and dilated, no pulse, no respiratory movements. He's dead. Signs of death warrant. He's taken to the mortuary. I've seen the interview with um, mortician Barlington R. Mann. And uh, there he said he does the usual thing. His body's put out in the slab, as he calls it. It's injected all the fluids and stuff, the embalming fluids, that's, that's, uh, that stuff, especially because of the hot temperature there. They have quite strong fluids, um, strong chemicals. And uh, he's all the cotton wool up in the nose, all that sort of stuff. It's all prepared, placed in the coffin. He's there for three days. His wife is devastated. Dan, Pastor Daniel's wife. She cries out to God, claiming all manner of promises, including this one. You might not know this one. Hebrews 11.35. Women receive back their dead, raised to life again. She claims it, believes it. Famous uh, evangelist of the time, Reinhard Bonnke's holding an evangelistic event nearby. She goes to the mortician, asks for the body to be released. She takes the body of her husband, in the coffin. They try and bring it into the evangelistic meeting. Security immediately pop open the coffin, think there's a bomb or drugs or something in there. They see a dead body. And they say, you still can't bring it in. He's not allowed in. <laughs> she manages to go around backstage and some pastors let her in and out of compassion for her more than anything else, the body's taken out and they pray for her dead husband. Because it's a big event, there's cameras everywhere. The footage is captured. After praying for a time, his heart starts to move. Message goes out to the front of stage, to Bonke and the others. We've got a guy who's been dead for three days. We're praying for him and his heart's starting to move, but his body still feels like a stone. Bonke encourages the crowd to pray for him. They pray. He's completely resurrected. He tells his story the whole time he, he was dead. He was being shown around heaven. He talks all about it. And he was actually taken to the very gates of hell, he tells in his account. Well, he's still alive to this day. Still a pastor, evangelist. And of course, because of that experience, he talks about eternity. Verified miracle. By the way, uh, I've got the uh, Reinhard Bonnke version, but I remember I, I bought a version of this just... it's. Um, one called the Lazarus Phenomena. I just got it off the shelf in Kmart and it was also a video easy. It's got his story and another story. Verified miracles. Never think, I've got a heap of them I could tell by the way, never think God doesn't raise the dead today. He still does it. But what about you today? Do you need God work miraculously in your life today? going to finish our service and oh, I want to just open it up. Some of you might have a need this morning. Let's be upstanding as the worship team returns. You might have a need this morning. You're thinking to yourself, man, actually I, I could do with a miracle in this department of my life or in my friend's life. If that's you this morning, why don't you take the opportunity to come forward? It's prayer for healing. We've got some anointing oil here. Sue's going to be down the front here helping you pray. Let me pray for you and then as the worship starts, feel free to come forward. If you have a prayer need, 
take the opportunity to allow God to do his miraculous work in your life this day. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you are the same God that we read about in the time of Elijah. You have not changed. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are unchanging. And Father, you are still the God of the miraculous. And so, Father, here today as we've opened our minds and our hearts to listen to the Word of God and be motivated as we read about these accounts um, uh, 2,800 years ago or so, Father, we want to pray that you would inspire us, speak to us, and remind us that the miracles you worked then, you still work today. So help us to cooperate with your Spirit in faith, in the name of Jesus. Amen.